Well, would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we come before you today. We just we praise you because of the life that you lived. We praise you because of the death that you died on our behalf. And Lord, most importantly, we praise you because you have rose again. You've defeated death and hell and the grave. And you are alive. Lord, this morning as we get into your word, I pray that you just anoint me with your Holy Spirit and speak through me. Lord, just use me however you wish this morning. I pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Dave Short, and uh, if if Ryan were introducing me, he would probably say this is going to be a short sermon. Uh, So I'll, I'll go ahead and add that in there for you. Uh, it's possible that it's going to be a short sermon. If I want to make some friends this morning, I'll, I'll try to keep it short. But um, I'm thankful that I'm not five foot five like my brother Steve, who lives up to his last name. He is the epitome of short. So I was a youth pastor for about seven or eight years before I had the opportunity to come and be a part of the North Canton Chapel. And I'm, I'm now one of the associate pastors here of communication and assimilation. And some of you guys are asking, what in the world is that? Well, it's just a whole lot of uh, the things that we do from web to print um, to new members to first-time guests, all that kind of stuff. It's all kind of wrapped into one role. I'm thankful to be here, and I'm thankful for this opportunity this morning to speak to you. Well, if you have your Bible or if you have a phone, uh, if you would take it out and you would turn to Mark chapter 8 this morning, I want, you in, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. And you can take that home with you today as as our gift to you. But before we get into the text this morning, our lives are filled with questions. And I don't know about you, but me, with a lot of questions, I don't do very well with questions. It's usually the questions where I'm put on the spot that I need to respond and need to provide an answer. I don't do well with those. However, Friday night, uh, I had an opportunity to go with uh, my, my two daughters. I've got four daughters. And two of the oldest daughters, I I was able to take them to their sweetheart dance at Wurstler Elementary. Shout out to Plain Local, all you Plain Local people, yeah. Um, So Friday night, I had this opportunity to to take them to their sweetheart's dance. And the afternoon, I, I start playing through these questions in my head. What do I wear? Not very important, but it's a it's a question that I wrestled with. And then when the girls got home from school, I asked them the question. Where should we go to dinner? Uh, and if you know in my house, there's usually, like we, we take a vote sometimes, and that's usually not the best thing because everybody has a different option, and then it boils down to Kara or myself making the decision, which it should be that way anyway. But the question of what should I wear and what should we eat are, are just normal everyday questions, but questions that, that really don't matter in the least at the end of the day. Some of life's questions are are really important. Some of us men in here, or a lot of us men in here, have faced the question to our our bride, will you marry me? Now that question has has lifelong implications. And and many of us men have jumped into that water of, of asking that question. We finally got the confidence to ask that question. And maybe some of you in here today are, are, are wrestling with the question or have experienced a loved one or a family member who has wrestled with the question, doctor, what's my prognosis? 
These type of questions are, are, are questions that have lifelong implications. Then there's just some questions in life that are unanswerable. And I don't know about you, but me, there's some questions like, why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why is my alarm going off when it's actually turning on? And there's another one. I mean, there's many questions like, why do you call what doctors are getting ready to do practice? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, those questions really don't have any weight or any eternal implications for our life. However, there's some the questions in life that have eternal significance that I feel like people in every culture all around the world have inside of them asking the questions, why am I here? Is there a God? What happens to me when I die? No matter where you're at in life, these are all questions, the tensions of our heart that hunger for a longing to find out who is the creator. Most questions in life leave us with some choices. Unless it's a rhetorical question, all questions merit a response. And this morning in the text, in Mark chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus ask two simple questions. Simple questions, but very profound questions. These questions have eternal significance, not only for the disciples, but when faced with the truth, these questions have eternal, eternal ramifications for us as well. So as we get into Mark chapter 8, we've been in Mark since, I don't know, maybe a year ago, Ryan, um, for quite a while. But however, we have not really been back in the gospel of Mark since about November. Uh, we've had some other sermon series. We just got done t uh, teaching and preaching the Living Generously series. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed that. But we're back into Mark this morning with our Disciple series. And uh, we're, we're coming to the point of the teaching where Jesus, um, he's just finished rebuking the, the religious leaders uh, for their traditions. Jesus just healed the blind man. We see Jesus teaching. And Mark, up to this point, has shown Jesus as the Messiah. But people are missing it. Even his disciples are missing it. Jesus is speaking in parables, which we learned months ago, that parables are just a great way to tell a story, a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. But those were like Jesus's way of speaking in code to kind of not yet say what his mission was about or not yet say what he came to do. But this morning in Mark chapter 8, we're at the turning point. This, this is an important passage. This is like the climax of the story, the gospel of Mark. And from here on out, all the events in Mark chapter 8 point toward the mission of the cross for what Jesus came to do. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones or you're looking up on the screen, um, we're going to start reading in verse 27. And if you can't see it on the screen, it's because I made the, the, the lyrics or the, the words too small. So um, go ahead and read it on your own. And if you can, zoom in on the screens. Verse 27 says this, And Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Here in this first chunk of the passage, we see probably one of the most famous confessions of who Jesus is throughout all the New Testament. 
It's probably one of the most important exchanges or conversations that takes place throughout the New Testament. We've got Jesus having a conversation with the disciples, and we're going to look today at this passage in three different parts, but this passage of Scripture can be looked at as one big conversation with Jesus and his disciples. So we'll look at today the three parts of the same conversation. Today, I want us to look at when faced with the truth of this text, what do we learn? The first, the first point we, we learn, the first part when faced with the truth of this text, we, we see the identity of Jesus. In verse 27 through 30, we just read that, Jesus is on his way with his disciples to this village of Caesarea Philippi. We see that throughout the scriptures that context is key. Context is so important. And what's cool about the Bible is that usually, there's usually more going on in between what we read in the text culturally um, or during the time than what sometimes we're able to read. So Caesarea Philippi, it was a city built by Herod the Great. It had a temple that was dedicated to the emperor Caesar Augustus. And if you remember back to Luke chapter 2, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So when Herod died, his son Philip, the Tetrarch, succeeded him as the Roman king. Okay? He then renamed this city after the emperor and then after himself, thus the name Caesarea Philippi. And you may say, great, Dave, what does all that mean to me? Well, in 2010, I had an opportunity to go to Israel. And if you ever have an opportunity to go to Israel, I hear that Ryan's leading a trip. I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's not leading a trip. Um, if you ever have an opportunity to, to go to Israel, uh, I would strongly encourage you to go to Israel. Because what it does is it allows the, the text of Scripture and what you read in Scripture to really just come to life. That these places are real. That what you read about there, it just puts, it puts a picture to what exactly was happening during the times of Jesus. So in 2010, I had an opportunity to go to Israel and go to Caesarea Philippi. And at this site, it was actually about 25 miles north of Capernaum. Capernaum was right there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Nazareth, Capernaum, and the Sea of Galilee was the area where Jesus did most of his ministry. But 25 miles north in this village of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples. So I've decided to put some pictures up for you this morning. This is the, the present day, a present day picture of what Caesarea Philippi looks like. And there's this huge rock. And in this rock, there's this grotto that's kind of carved out into the rock. And you can't really see it in this picture. or Maybe you can. On the left side by this park bench, there's this natural spring. It's beautiful. Once you get up to the rock, you see the natural springs just flowing. There's this like this little waterfall. And these are actually the springs that feed the Jordan River. So as you come closer, and we see in this next picture, you see uh, up against this rock, you see kind of some, some, ancient, um, some ancient artifacts of, of the original temple that was there. You see these niches that were carved out into the rock, places where these, these Greek gods would, would be hoisted up. This is a place of, of idol worship. Uh, this was a place dedicated essentially to this, this Greek god Pan. Um, Pan was the god of fertility, the god of nature, and the god of pleasure. We also see other gods being worshipped here. Asclepius, which was the god of healing. You see Zeus and Athena and, and many other Greek gods. And like I said, this, you also see the remnants of the temple uh, that was built here. 
Go ahead and show the next picture too. I, I, I took a picture of this plaque that was out in front of the site here of Caesarea Philippi. And then this next picture, I'm actually going to zoom in and show you kind of what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. So Jesus is taking the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, and this is what he's up against. He's got this rock where idols are being worshipped, where these Greek gods are being worshipped, and he, and he asks the disciples these two questions. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What Jesus is doing, I don't find it an accident. Jesus could have, have come out and, and said who he was as Messiah anywhere. I don't find it an accident that Jesus comes to Caesarea Philippi with the disciples and say, who do people say that I am? Amidst all that's being worshipped here around us, what's being said? Jesus is taking on the religious forces of the day. He's taking on the political forces of the day. And, and, and Jesus is essentially saying, all these cultures and all that's being worshipped, I'm going to confront them with who I am. He asked them the question, who do people say that I am? And, and the disciples' response was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. Jesus knew what people were saying about him. He didn't have to ask that question. Jesus always looked for an opportunity to teach his disciples. We see this throughout the New Testament. He also knew the hearts of the disciples. He didn't have to ask this question, but he follows this question up with, who do you say that I am? If he was going to take a group of 12 men that were going to turn the world up upside down for the sake of the gospel, they would need to have a moment when faced with the truth that they understood the true identity of Jesus. This was that moment. He asks them, who do you say that I am? And this is a personal question that Jesus has for his disciples. And the heart of that question actually is applicable for you and I today. We all have that opportunity to answer who is Jesus every day. The question I have for you this morning is, is where are you getting your cues about who Jesus is? Who defines what Jesus is to you? Is it the culture? Is it social media? Is it politics? Who, who really is shaping your view of God? Our hope and our prayer is that it's the foundation of God's word, the truth of God's word that is shaping, the shaping your view of God, and then the Holy Spirit that illuminates his word to you. So here we see Peter's response, and we know a lot of times throughout the Gospels that Peter functions as the spokesman for the group. He says, you are the Christ, and the word Christ here means Messiah. We just sang about it, Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Lord of all. But what he's saying in saying he's the Messiah is he had this understanding, no doubt, that this Jewish understanding of who Jesus as Messiah would be. You see, the Jews thought of this military conqueror that would come in and wipe out the evil and brokenness and the tyranny of the Romans. But when Peter says, you are Messiah, he got the answer right but he also was not fully clued in with what was going on. We see this conversation happen in, in, in other parts of the Gospels. We see it in Matthew chapter 16. And, and Matthew records a little bit more about what Jesus says uh, to Peter in the exchange there. He says, Simon Peter, like, 
This has been revealed to you by God and by the Father. This has not been revealed to you by, by, by man or by flesh. And before we give too, too much credit for Peter, to, to Peter for getting the right answer, let's hold up. I think there's a lot of times in our own life that we get the right answer about stuff. But we get the right answer about who Jesus is. I mean, I may ask you that, this, that question this morning, and you have the right answer, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the question is, does your life reflect the Jesus that you say you believe in? You know, Peter had a mistaken identity of who Jesus was. Growing up, I grew up in a church family. Uh, my dad was a music minister, a music pastor at our church growing up. And I was one of the kids that I, I could tell you, like, every time the doors were open at church, I was there. Before my dad was a music minister, my dad was the custodian. So I have a, an appreciation for people who set up and tear down and take out the trash because we were there Tuesday nights, Thursday nights, Saturday nights, Sunday nights, Wednesday for Awana, and we were always at church. Like, that was my world. At the age of five, I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus in my heart. But then my life continued just to go on um, looking like the, the, the patterns in the people of this world. Throughout my high school days, I, I tried to fit in with everybody. Like, I was kind of ashamed and kind of, kind of shy on one hand at school to, to tell people that I was a Christian. Maybe some of you guys can relate with that this morning. Throughout high school, I, again, I always went to church, but I, I really never read my Bible. I tried to fill my life up with all of these good things, hoping that the good would outweigh the, the facade uh, or the bad things that I was, I was trying to hide um, when I was at school or with my friends. I went off to college. I went to a Christian school, uh, Liberty University, and I was faced with the truth um, with my RA who came to me one morning and, and really just asked me this question. He's like, so Dave, like, what have you been reading in your Bible? And I'm like, Chuck, like, that's a, that's a really good question. Like, I, I'm kind of ashamed because up to this point as an 18-year-old man, like, kid still, off, off at school, been a Christian since I was the age of five, I had never read my Bible. And I was challenged from Chuck to, to really start spending time in God's word and start having a quiet time or devotion time, what happened in the next few years was really this process of Jesus drawing me to himself and me recognizing that I had this problem in my life that I could not take care of by myself, that Jesus died and paid the penalty for my sin on the cross, that I grew up liking the things of Jesus but now I recognize that God was calling me to himself and that I loved him and I wanted to serve my life for him and be obedient to what he had called me to do. You see, my life growing up, I had a mistaken identity of who Jesus was. And maybe that's some of us in here. Maybe you're sitting here saying, you know what? The Jesus that I know is just this one day a week Jesus. Or I prayed this prayer 50 years ago. But I want to challenge you. Do you love Jesus? Who does your life say that Jesus is? Do you have a genuine love for him? You see, we know that Peter got it wrong for the disciples because in verse 30, Jesus charges them to tell no one about him. And this is kind of a unique statement there. Like you would think after Jesus asked those questions and Peter gets the right answer, that he'd say, go and tell the world. 
But the reality is the disciples, what they knew about Jesus as Messiah up to this point was inadequate. They didn't fully know who Jesus was. You see, they had spent their time with Jesus, but they didn't fully know who Jesus was. So we're going to move ahead to verse 31 through 33. Again, part of the same conversation, this second part, when faced with the truth of the gospel, we see the importance of the cross. Let's go ahead and read 31 through 33. It says, and he began to teach them. I don't want us to miss that. That part is important because Jesus corrects the false understanding about who he is, about what the disciples had about him. He began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Also, don't forget that word there, that he must, meaning he willfully chose to suffer and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. It's a pretty harsh statement right there. For, for in one, one breath, for Peter to be getting it right, and then in the same conversation, for him to be called Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think it's important here to see that Jesus is clearly explaining to them, not in a parable form, not in analogy form, but he's clearly saying who he is in his identity. He's saying that he is the Messiah who must willfully suffer and die, that his mission is the cross, and in three days rise again. You see, when Peter hears this in verse 32, he says, no, Jesus, that's not happening. Like he, he tries to correct Jesus and says, no, this is not you. That's not gonna happen. Peter missed it when faced with the truth of the importance of the cross. Point number two, if you're writing that down this morning, is when faced with the truth of the importance of the cross. Peter missed it. Don't miss it this morning. We see throughout the New Testament that the Apostle Paul preaches Christ crucified, and he also preaches in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Without the cross, the gospel is not good news. And also, we sang a song about it, but without the resurrection, without the hope of the resurrection, we, we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Apostle Paul says, look, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, everything that we do here is worthless. So friend, this morning, we can trust and believe in the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. We, we find hope and peace in that. And better yet, because Jesus has risen from the grave, because he's alive, we now are empowered to live out his intended ways for us. You see, it's because of the cross that we're able to get this full picture of God's everlasting love for mankind and his total wrath against the sins of, of humanity. In the cross, we see the picture of God's love for human, humankind and his wrath against the sins of humanity. You see, since the beginning of time, we see God created everything good and perfect. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. And, and all that he created was good. But there was a problem. 
In the beginning of time, man chose to rebel against God. Man essentially said, thanks God for making me, no thanks for telling me how to live. And since that time, throughout the Old Testament, man was continuing to try to find ways to live, to, to measure up and to find God. When man chooses to go his own way, the Bible says, that way leads to death. Romans says, by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, so all have sinned. We have inherited this sinful nature. Ephesians says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are not good. Romans 3 says we are, there is none righteous. No, not even one. But the good news, there is, God, there is a God who is rich in mercy, who demonstrates his love for us, Romans 5.8, in that while we were still sinners, we're still sinners today, but while we were still sinners, he died for us. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and died the death that you and I deserve. You see, the payment for our sin, we see it in Romans chapter 6, the payment for our sin is death. Jesus took the payment for our sin. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. He took the pain, the punishment of our sin. So today, this morning, we have an opportunity to believe, to repent and turn from our sin and to believe and trust in the good news of Jesus, that the cross is important, that the good news of this text, that we can, when faced with the truth of the gospel, when faced with the truth of, of the cross, that we can believe that, that life has worth and value. We see Peter rebuke Jesus. He didn't understand the cross. Jesus then rebukes Peter back strongly. And, and again, he says, get behind me, Satan. The reason he's able to say this is because he was not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, what we learn from the disciples is that we are constantly, they are constantly believing and then they're confused. And then they're believing, and then they're confused. I, I think back to like the feeding of the 5,000. Like Jesus did that to meet a need, but he also did that to teach his disciples. Like, where are we going to get the food, Jesus? He's like, trust me. They were constantly believing and then confused. Even in the midst of walking daily with Jesus, they were in this state of, of belief and unbelief. Some of us can resonate with that this morning. How often in our lives are we in the same boat as Peter where we daily set our minds on Jesus but we allow a situation to come into our life where we believe that that's gonna give us uh, significance or value or we've got a problem that comes into our life that we think is too big for God or we've got something that comes in that we feel like satisfies us better than who Jesus is. And we allow the circumstance of the day to trump Jesus in our life. We're the same way. We're believing and unbelieving. And our response to that when faced with the truth of the gospel is to remember the cross. Remember what Jesus did on our behalf. To, to behold the things of the Father. To set our mind on the things above, Colossians says. John 15 says, to abide in me and I in you and apart from me, you can do nothing. So our response in these moments of unbelief is to be uh, gospeled and have our heart gospeled with the good news of Jesus and the cross 
And the fact that sin has been defeated and we can live a life glorifying to Jesus. So the things, again, in life, we go through these series of unbelief. We remind ourselves of the cross and that Jesus is better. Hebrews 12, 2 says, We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, friends, daily we go through these series of unbelief and belief, but we can bring our minds back to the truth of the gospel and say, I don't have to fight it anymore. The battle has been won. Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave that I can believe and trust in the good news of Jesus. So let's transition into the third part of this conversation with Jesus and his disciples. In the third part of this this text, we see that they are faced with the truth of the cost of discipleship. If you're writing that down on the back of your worship guide, awesome. And if you're not, if you're taking notes, that's awesome too. But if you're following along, we're we're thankful for that. Um, And if you're sleeping, then I'm sorry. (laughs) I'll try not to to make you sleep too much. Um, We see throughout Scripture that Jesus' call to any follower or, or his disciples is this radical call. You know, I think sometimes in our world that we think that Jesus calls us to, you know, just respond to him and our life gets better. But the reality is like John chapter 6, Jesus says like, if you want to come after me, you must be willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Some crazy statements from Jesus. We see Jesus in Luke chapter 9 saying, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We see Luke chapter 14, where this passage, he's teaching on the cost of discipleship. He says, look, if you're not willing to hate your father and mother, and yes, even your own life, really the idea of let me be the priority of your life, then do you understand the cost of what it means to follow me? Let's go ahead and read verses 34 through the end of that chapter, and then we'll we'll end it with uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus says this, and calling to the, cro- the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, I want you to notice this. Peter here becomes the object lesson to the disciples and to the rest of the crowd. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man that he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say unto you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this is a heavy chunk of this passage. Again, part of the same conversation. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He explains the importance of his identity, the importance of the cross. And then he lays out, if you're going to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. Go back to the words, deny yourself. Jesus says, you must deny yourself. Our world says to live for yourself, that you are number one. That it's okay, just love yourself. You just need to love yourself. But self-denial and and self, 
um, denying of oneself is not self-hatred. It's actually recognizing that we don't have the ability within us to save ourselves, that we can stop looking to us and that we can look to Jesus. The second part, to take up your cross. And in the first century, this would have been an admonition to, to martyrdom, to, to take up this instrument of torture and to die. It's a recognition of, of owning that there is no one else that can forgive me of sin or can save me of my sin than Jesus. You know, I believe that salvation happens in a moment in time, but I also believe that it's an ongoing reality in our life. It's this process of, of daily dying to ourselves and daily picking up our cross and following after Jesus in obedience. He goes on to say, for whoever would save his life will lose it. We just got done speaking in the, the Living Generously series about generosity and that really being an overflow of the gospel and the gospel's transformation in our heart. I think sometimes in this world we try to save up stuff and protect, um, but that is opposite of what Jesus says in the gospel. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. You know, friends, we need to stop seeking to save and protect, um, but, but rather give up control of our lives to the one who holds it all together. We see in verse 36, he goes on to say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You know, I don't want us to miss this part. Jesus understood the value of your soul and my soul. Jesus deemed your soul and my soul worthy of his son, Jesus, uh, of his death on the cross. We see in verse 38, he goes on to say, for whoever is ashamed of me, and I shared a little bit in my story that there was a period of my life that I was ashamed of who Jesus was, and I had this mistaken identity of who Jesus was. He said, whoever is ashamed of me, essentially he's going to be, be ashamed by my Father in heaven. When we're faced with the truth of this, um, let me ask you the question, why are you ashamed? It's possible that we're ashamed because we don't truly know him. You see, if we really knew Jesus, it wouldn't be that hard to talk about him. Because I see, I see in my life that it's easy to talk about the things that I'm proud of, uh, that I've accomplished, it's also easy to talk about the things that I love the most. It's, it's easy to talk about the things that I find my identity in. This morning, the last verse there, it says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come to power. And there's a, there's a handful of different things that people think that they understand what that means, but essentially it's just saying, you know, God's kingdom has come through the power and the person of Jesus on the cross. And to us, this is encouragement. You know, we now have the ability to respond to him and live a life that is obedient to him because of what he's accomplished, because of who he is, because of the cross. You hear, you hear it often here at the North Canton Chapel that a disciple is someone who is increasingly bringing all of life under the authority of Jesus. And we say that word increasingly because it's, it's really an opportunity and a process of your life to continue to get better, continue to die to self, to continue to take up your cross and continue to look to Jesus. It's a turning of your own way of, of doing things to turning to the mission of God and what he requires for you. It's bowing the knee. It's an all-in approach to life. 
So this morning, as we've read this huge chunk, I I want us to, to see this passage as a super important passage in the Gospel of Mark. I want us to see this passage because Jesus lays out to his disciples and asks these questions, but he's asking you this question this morning too. Who do you say that I am? And when faced with the truth of who Jesus is, the real Jesus, not what the world says about him, and the importance of what he did on the cross for us, and and the the response that is required of us in following after him, what does your life show that you believe about God? If I'd like everyone, everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes at this time, I want to invite the, the, the band back up. We're going to go to a time to be able to respond to, to what God's saying to you this morning. Again, two simple questions, but yet they're very profound. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's a question we all must deal with this morning. And we can get the answer right here this morning in saying that Jesus is the Son of God. We can sing songs about him, but then leave here and continue to live a life that is inconsistent with that confession. I want to challenge you with that question to search your heart, to know that Jesus is calling you to follow him. Yeah, the cost is steep, but there is hope in the power and in the name of Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is true. Lord, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it pierces through our hearts, cuts through bone and joint and marrow. Lord, and reveals to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we read this text this morning about a conversation you had with your disciples Lord, it's a conversation, it's a, it's a question you're asking us this morning. And we all must respond to Jesus. Lord, help us to respond this morning in obedience. I pray these things in Jesus' name.